The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. And Alaska Airlines, committed to enhancing our community's cultural and economic vitality for over 35 years. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. Today we continue our summer series called Failure is Not an Option as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission. We are continuing and concluding the story began in our previous episode about Jerry Cobb, a U.S. American woman who almost beat the men into space. You really should listen to the previous episode to get the context for today's conclusion before going on. You can find it right here on the feed. In today's episode, Museum of Flight docent John Fahrenbach picks up the story where he left off, with the Women in Space First program getting canceled, and some of the major players, Jerry Cobb included, preparing to make their case before Congress. Jerry Cobb and Jackie Cochran and Janie Hart, who was one of the Mercury 13 women and also the wife of Senator Philip Hart of Michigan. So she had some Washington connections. And those three women went to Washington and continued to lobby where they could, lobbied NASA, lobbied uh, you know congressional people. The culmination really, and, and probably the only satisfaction they could have hoped to get was through subcommittee hearings within the House of Representatives that were called basically as a favor to Jackie Cochran. And she, she had uh, great connections. She, she was a very public person, you know, a real success story and a pioneer in her own right. Jerry Cobb has been described with all of her credentials, and she was probably... 20 years younger than Jackie Cochran as the, the next Jackie Cochran, except that the original Jackie Cochran was, was uh, still, still a very preeminent character and there and probably didn't love the thought of someone. That's exactly her. right. There wasn't, there wasn't room in Jackie Cochran's world for the next Jackie Cochran. These congressional hearings are, are scheduled. It's supposed to be three days of hearings. The first day is going to be Jerry Cobb and Janie Hart testifying in front of the House committee, subcommittee. And they do that and, and make strong statements for the, for the role of women in the space program. Jerry Cobb, you know, the gist of her statements is that we are not trying to create a revolution here. We are just asking for a role in this program. The second day of the hearings involved John Glenn, uh, Scott Carpenter, and Jackie Cochran testifying. And it became a, a media show with the very popular Mercury astronauts being called to testify in front of Congress. Probably the, the most famous lasting uh, talking point coming out of John Glenn's testimony is that he said that the men go off and fight the wars and then they come back and they design the, the jets and they test the jets and they fly the jets. Uh, or the planes. It is part of the social order that men do this job. And in a press conference that occurred about that same time, Gordon Cooper, another one of the Mercury 7 astronauts, was asked if there was a role for women in the space program. And he said, well, I think it was our second mission or so. We could have sent a woman up instead of the chimpanzee. 
that was part of the environment that the women aviators in general, and certainly the women who were trying to become involved in the astronaut program, were encountering. This was a this was a good old boys club, and as one of the Mercury 13 women has said, there was no good old girls network. Those hearings pretty much ended after the astronaut's testimony and then Jackie Cochran's testimony. Jackie Cochran's testimony was probably the most damaging because you might have expected those sentiments coming from the men. But when Jackie Cochran was was asked uh, about uh, the role of women in the program and whether the program should be uh, uh, opened up to women, she basically said no, that the program should not be held up because it would slow down the overall program in general. It would slow down the men. And besides, it would be a terrible waste of time and money because you're going to lose many of the women through marriage. The Mercury, How many of the Mercury 7 were married? Uh, that's a great question, <laughs> and I don't know the answer. But, it's okay. But uh, certainly in the social roles at the time, the, the men could go off and do that, and the, and the women took care of the, of the home behind the scenes. Uh, but to try and reverse that order was was not something that was was seen often in the in the late 1950s and early 1960s. You know, many of the the Mercury 13 women felt Jackie Cochran really betrayed their cause in that testimony. They were hoping for a third day. There were a third day of of testimony before the subcommittee had been scheduled, but it was pretty much summarily canceled at that point. That committee had heard enough. The committee chair was retiring. He was going to get this done. Uh, their report came out a little bit later and said that there was no discrimination in the cancellation of this testing program, and, and that was the end of it. Janie Hart had connections, and she was able to make a connection through Liz Carpenter, who was uh, LBJ's executive secretary. And uh, LBJ was, was vice president at the time, but he was pretty much in charge of, of the direction of the space program. Ms. Carpenter wrote a memo for LBJ's signature that was kind of an exploratory memo to to NASA requesting a reconsideration perhaps of the screening requirements for the astronaut candidates to consider uh, female candidates. Jerry Cobb and Janie Hart got the opportunity to meet with LBJ in his office. He had the memo in his side drawer basically ready to go if that would have you know, somehow uh, appeased or advanced the, the situation. But the conversation never got to that point. He never intended it to. His direction, his communication with Jerry Cobb and Janie Hart at the time was, we don't need to do this. We're behind. You know, basically, he didn't give them any encouragement uh, at all. And he certainly didn't introduce the memo that could have been sent to NASA to perhaps extend the conversation. And in fact, what he wrote across the bottom of the memo for his assistance was, let's stop this now. And just for added emphasis, he wrote file. So as far as Johnson was concerned, that was the end of the conversation. And in fact, it was. The The program officially ended. Women were not in the picture as astronaut candidates for roughly another 20 years. In the U.S.? In the U.S., and that's a great point. So this happens by the end of 1962. The program is canceled. In early 1963, the Soviet Union indeed uh, puts a woman up in space, Valentina Tereshkova, who uh, orbits a number of times, became a very popular uh, figure in the in the Soviet space program, and I believe in Soviet politics. You know, demonstrating certainly that women could handle the physical and physiological stresses as well as the psychological stresses of, of space travel. Jerry Cobb and Janie Hart continued to lobby in Washington 
for a while. Janie Hart's children say this was the beginning of her turn toward radicalization. Now, radicalization then probably doesn't mean have the same connotation (laughs) it does today, but she went on to become one of the co-founders of of NOW, the National Organization of Women. So so this was definitely a turning point in her awareness of how women were being treated in society. Jerry Cobb continued lobbying for a couple of years, quietly behind the scenes, eventually realized that that the moment had passed, you know, especially after after the Soviet Union put a woman in space, the opportunity for, for the United States to do that first had, had certainly passed. In 1964, Jerry Cobb began a career, I'll call it a five-decade career, where she was flying as a missionary in South America, primarily solo flights, she loved flying. That was really from the time she was 12 years old. She said, all I ever really wanted to do was fly. And so she chose this remarkable career path where she becomes a, a solo pilot, flies for many, many years in South America, uncharted routes, routes where she was flying over the Amazon jungle or she was flying across the Andes mountains, plotting these routes, mapping these routes for, for future reference, but delivering supplies to communities that were otherwise totally isolated. And she worked in, you know, a number of countries in and around the Amazon basin there. So Brazil, Peru, Ecuador. I mean, in that time, if if she'd been lost, what would have happened? Right. I I think it was a a high-risk proposition. She would have been lost and and never heard of again. It very much suited her. It was a solo path. That uh, quiet person, that shy person that I talked about earlier, you know, this was something that she could be comfortable flying. That's all she really wanted to do. Her contributions were so significant. In 1981, uh, she was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. I think that fact alone is is the reason that, you know, I've been really intrigued by her as a character. Somebody who went through this massive rejection of everything she was trying to accomplish on a very public very publicly scale. And so she returned to flying, which was her, her real love. Flying not just for her own benefit or to set records and put her names in the, her name in the headlines, but for the humanitarian benefit of, of uh, thousands of people done for 40 to 50 years. Jerry Cobb passed away just a couple months ago, March of 2019, at the age of 88. Curiously, in the 1990s, late 1990s, when then-Senator John Glenn uh, lobbied for a, a mission on the space shuttle for a geriatric astronaut, and he was, of course, the obvious candidate, and he got that opportunity to fly on a space shuttle. And that's probably the only time in the 50 years following the Mercury 13 episode that Jerry Cobb pressed her case one more time that said, you have the opportunity to send a older female astronaut, and she would have loved to have been that candidate. But once again, NASA turned a deaf ear to that request. Now, I don't want to trash NASA unnecessarily, because uh, certainly by that time, you know, in in the 1980s, uh, NASA introduced their first class of of female candidates. Sally Ride was the first uh, female astronaut to go into space aboard the space shuttle. In the 1990s, Eileen Collins became the first pilot of the space shuttle, later the first commander of the space shuttle. On the opportunity of her becoming the first pilot, Eileen Collins made it a point to recognize the the Mercury 13 women, women who were were pioneers, very definitely pioneers in their own right. They were were accomplished aviators in many thousands of hours of flying time, but 
pioneers in their pursuit of, of an opportunity in space, and they were denied. But without their efforts breaking the ground or at least uh, probing the, the ground to promote uh, opportunities for women in space, Eileen Collins said that without their efforts, she wouldn't have been where she was as the first female shuttle pilot and eventually the shuttle first female shuttle commander. Jerry Cobb, as the face of, of this group of 13 women, I think was a remarkable character, truly a, a humble role model, a kind person. And in the face of failure, she went on to a probably much more meaningful long-term career. One of the themes we're visiting this summer is, is the idea of failure is not an option. How do you think this story, Jerry's story, fits into that? Was this a failure, the Mercury 13? I think on the surface, you, you have to say it was a failure. And as you, as you look back on it, it, it's certainly disappointing. And you feel for the, the women and what kind of a gut punch that must have been to the, for them to experience at a time. From the perceived failure of not getting an opportunity to participate in the astronaut program, they certainly continued productive careers and were meaningful role models for women in aviation. You know, define failure. It might be a short-term setback, and the ultimate beneficiaries will not be the original competitors, but you've accomplished something for the, for the next generation of aviators, female aviators, and that's what this group uh, very definitely did. And what I appreciate about this story is we're, we're celebrating this year the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, and, you know, this story doesn't detract from the great things that were accomplished, but we have a tendency to sweep some of the more sour episodes under the rug. But this is a good story that also adds the human dimension to this whole thing. You know, these were people who made all these decisions. It's important not to forget them. Right. It, you know, it's, it's easy to, to look back uh, with hindsight from 50 years later and say, well, you know, so obvious they could have done this. There were a lot of cultural and social things at play. I mean, we were behind in the space race. That urgency was driving a lot of decisions. There's no uh, denying the fact that the social environment in terms of, of men and women and their roles was very different. And that's part of the pioneering aspect of, of these women is that you know, we talk about women aviators. We go back into the 20s and 30s and talk about the, the accomplished female aviators, and we think, wow, that's really neat what they did. We don't really appreciate how much... Contextualize that. Yeah, contextualize <laughs> that, how much resistance they encountered while they were on their way to, you know, setting records and, and winning races against men and so on. Uh, they they weren't invited in, and uh, these, these pioneers uh, forced their way in. You know, that continues today. John, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. This is episode three of our five-episode series, Failure is Not an Option, sponsored by Alaska Airlines. Next episode, by the way, features an exclusive discussion with NASA astronaut Buzz Aldrin recorded while he was here at the museum recently. So get ready for that. If that doesn't make you want to subscribe, then I don't know what will. If you like what you hear, please rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcast at museumofflight.org. 
And until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. Bye.